Hello everyone and welcome to the Northerners Car Show. Ah yeah, hello everyone. This is our weekly themed motoring podcast featuring me, Ethan. And me, Daryl. Catch us on all podcast players and most social media platforms, which you can all find linked in the description below. With that being said, we hope you enjoy the episode. Hello everyone and welcome to the Northerners Car Show. We are now in double digits, episode numero 10. Numero Season 10. two, we're doing well, we're doing well. Uh, I'm Ethan. And I'm Daryl. Yeah, because we always have to do that by your books, don't we? Correct. Anyway, uh, where should we start today? Uh, at the beginning. Of today, when you nearly crashed? No, I didn't crash. Oh, I don't know. I you couldn't get a car. Um, it were it were cold, weren't it? Very. So when I've looked... I slipped on my ass about four times. Everybody's car were like an inch thick in frost, except for mine because it was stuck between the houses and it, it acts as uh, like a barrier. Yeah. But uh, them frameless doors, when I went to it, yeah, I went to I pressed the button, and I opened it, and it didn't want it. It, it wanted pulling a bit because it stuck. Why did you take the Mazda this morning? Because I thought I'd get away with it, <laughs> and then uh, yeah. So I started it up and I started warming it up, and I went to shut it, and it won't shut because the right. window won't working because right. it had all froze up. So I drove halfway to work with the door kind of. Should have bought a proper car then. I was kind of hanging on to it, or, or, really? or whatever you do. Well, it was on the catch. Right. But some cars lock when they're on the catch, and some don't. Did it? No, oh. these don't. Right. So uh, I banged the heater and the seats on and everything else. Right. And halfway there, it managed to start working again because I'd shut the door. Yeah, I mean, it could be worse. It could have frozen shut, so you couldn't get it open. Yeah. And then yeah. it'll then the windows will try and wind down when you open the door and then they'll get stuck and then it'll throw an electric glitch and then it'll all be buggered. I was just glad that the windows are back to normal. Yeah. Uh it's it, it, I think we're towards the end of the cold weather, aren't we? Give or take. I hope so. I'm gonna swap them round when we're finished. Here. I didn't mention that. We didn't we didn't shoot an episode last week, did we? No, we didn't, no. Well, essentially what happened was is you did about a million night shifts. Mm. What felt like anyway. So essentially, what what the days looked like was I'd leave at six, get home at six ish, and you'd a.m. to p.m. Then you'd leave at six p.m. and get back at six a.m. So we had no time to do it, like all week. Correct. It was it was all Monday to Friday. It was like that. Yeah, we had chaos. no choice. We could have done it Saturday or Sunday, but by that point we were too late. So we thought, and we weren't really like up to it. I, I didn't think there's much that I could have brought myself around to say. To be fair. Right. I mean, we could have done it when, like, you got in from work and I was leaving, but we tried it, and, well, we didn't try it, but I was just like, you're going to be asleep, and I'm barely awake, so. So what you're saying is, you're rejuvenated. Yeah, that's why we're going to do a slightly different uh, second half this week. We might oh. do a bit more than a second half. All right. You can go to sleep for the second half, pretty much. Yeah, it ah, is. Probably it will. It literally is. Anyway, uh, in that time, all the Ferrari Puro Sang stuff came out, didn't it? All the uh, press drives. Oh, yeah. Did yeah. you like it? Yeah. Well, I like it, but it's just, yeah, it's an SUV. Isn't it? well, it's not no, an SUV. No, it's not. It's not an SUV. No, it's got a unique selling point that none of the Ferrari. others have got. That's all it is. It's no, just it a sli- Yeah, it is. It's, it's got something that all the others haven't got. 6.5 litre V12. It's got a V12 engine in it. I think it'd be the first Ferrari to go all electric. I think that's what the plan is. I don't know about I that. think they're going to... Yeah, they are. They, it, I think they were just starting out with this V12 and then they're going to, like... Then they're going to bring out, you know, like maybe the 296 engine or the Roma engine or something like that. I know there's been, uh, there's something about them putting a V12 in a Roma. Right. Which is just a mini 812, really, isn't it? Because a Roma's just a bit coupe. 
I mean, you think all the mother of these, we have four litre V8s and all the rest of They're it. They're just the same with different bodies. I mean, twelve. Let's let's not let's not say that because we've never driven a single SUV in our lives. Well, I certainly haven't. What about you? Uh, no. Aside from a transit van. <laughs> Is it tranny van? No, it doesn't. Oh. Um. So yeah, that's the Pura Sangue. Is that how you say it? Pura Sangue. Mm. Um. What also happened? Uh, although it was a very long time ago, is the Bahrain Grand Prix. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Um, Next, I'll keep it. I'll season's keep, over. Uh, yeah, I'll keep. I'll keep it short and simple. Uh, <laughs> I can't stand Fernando Alonso. Honestly, can't stand. I thought thoughts. he did very well. What an ass! No, I can't. He'd overtake people and go like, "Bye bye," like that. I mean, he's enjoying himself. On. Yeah, but that's just being an ass. He's over fourteen. He's enjoying himself. You've got to admire him for that. Yeah, but he's a bit of an ass. No, he is. I know he's not popular because they're all the Lewis. Thing. Yeah, especially with me as well. But, uh, and because um, he overtook both my Ferrari drivers. But. I think my uh, Red Bull uh, constructor bet's looking good. It topped it off when Leclerc retired. That wound me up the most. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it weren't good in qualifying where something fell off in the first five minutes. Yeah, and it. then when they didn't do a flying lap at the end to save the tyres, which they went behind on strategy anyway, that was some of the worst strategy I've ever seen. I think the gulf between Red Bull and the rest is bigger this year than it was last year. No, I think they can turn it around. No, I want them that to. That is it. It's I over. Want them to. I think Done. they can. Uh, one final thing I want to touch on before we get on to our main topic, and that's quick already, isn't it? Seven minutes this quick. Is it? McLaren electrification. McLaren have um, reportedly secured a £70 million cash injection by selling shares to existing investors. They also raised about half a billion pounds by selling off their, like, I know, 100 million pounds, sorry, by selling off some of their vintage stuff. And it's all to go towards electric development cars. Don't they fall into that low volume people that don't have to do it? No, they make too many cars for that. Do they? And uh, that'll apply to like Zenvo or Bugatti that make five cars a year, that sort of thing. Surely they don't make thousands. Yeah, they just don't sell thousands. They make them, but they don't sell them. Maybe they should count the ones that work. Oh, they'll be fine. Yeah, it says they report the funding. Why not? We saw one at the motorist. Oh, didn't that, we? their aim is to raise half a billion pounds, um, and they sold, like I said, they sold seven. They got a seventy million injection or whatever, and hundred million of selling their historic cars. That is, that is really playing with fire, selling your historic stuff. You know, yeah. like the, you know, like Senna cars and stuff that have been sat in walking. They've sold them. Some things are priceless and you shouldn't do it. Yeah. So, would you like to get on to the main topic? No. Why? No, because it means I've got to shut up. Well, I've written quite a lot for this, and I don't know if I want to do this, because it's a lot of talking and it's like storytelling. Once upon a time. Once upon a time, there was a bloke called Jim. <laughs> Somebody threw a tomato at him. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'll start then. So um, we're going to start with, well, this is the story of Jim Clark, because essentially it was around about 55 years ago in this month period that he was born and he also died. Right. Like I think he was born early March, died early April, yeah? What do you think? You said you'd done the research. No, I do know, I'm just saying it. Okay. Uh, and I, I'm not, I'm not going to do it when it's closer to his death day, because we're going to do Senna then, because Senna died on the 1st of May, and that one needs an episode as well. Anyway, uh, for those who don't know, Jim Clark was... And still is, I'd say, considered one of the best drivers ever to grace the sport. Would you say that? Uh, F1? Yeah. He's, he's definitely up there. Uh, and today we're going to cover his life from the beginning in the uh, 50s of racing local rallies and hill climb events in his Sunbeam Talbot. 
Uh, to his tragic death in Hockenheim, Germany in April of 1968. Uh, Do you know much about his death? I know more about Tolbert. Well, you'll know about his death very soon. Uh, wait, is that is it that bad? <laughs> Tolbert got bought by uh, Peugeot, if I remember right. Right. Uh, let me just quickly set a timer so uh, we don't go too far I'm sure both. your granddad Northern had a Tolbert at some point. Really? At least one, yeah. Anyway, so this is... Um, there is six parts to uh, this little thing. Uh, so we're going to start with part one, which is his upbringing. So uh, James Clark Jr., OBE was born on March the 4th, 1936, in somewhere in Scotland. Yeah. He was part of a family of five um, on a farm. And now, this is one thing that you notice about a lot of Formula 1 drivers. Like, they'll, they'll have access to a lot of private roads when they're younger. Do you notice that? Yeah. Like, yeah. so that I remember Johnny Herbert, I think his, his grandparents owned a karting track, so he spent every summer there. Do you know what I mean? That sort of thing. Um, and obviously, like most families, Clark's household uh, didn't want him to do it. Didn't want him to take up motorsport, which um, thankfully I never had that. It was the complete opposite, if I'm honest, wasn't it? Mm, yeah. Um, but to be fair, Clark was like it. He, did, he never wanted. He never intended to make a career out of racing, um, and wanted to keep it strictly to a farm boy's hobby and not a way of life. He right. once said. Anyway, that is the little part one segment of where um, he was born. There are a lot more lengthier than that. That was just a little uh, upbringing. So um, this is part two: the beginning of driving. Uh, so essentially, he passed his driving test on the seventh, on his seventeenth birthday, on the day. That's when you could do it back then. Yeah, nineteen fifty-three. At which point, he'd already left school and he was living full time and working full time on the farm. And then, obviously, he purchased his uh, Sunbeam Talbot, uh, which was meant for personal transportation. However, like most teenagers, it didn't last very long. And by uh, three years in, he'd already started using it in local rallies and driving skill tests. Right. I won't be joining that. I don't think. I hope not. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, it didn't take him long to gain recognition. I mean, besides the fact that he's got such talent, that can't go unseen forever, can it? Let's be honest. Hmm. I mean, you'd have to disguise it pretty well. Um, and therefore, he graduated to winning club races in a variety of sports cars, and he was scouted for a team called Border Reavers. No. Essentially, what they did is uh, put him in Le Mans in 1959 in sports cars. And he was also surrounded by a lot of wealthy uh, friends that had a passion for motorsport and it was them that actually got him going like if it weren't for them he probably would have stayed in his normal life it was like that he was the sort of guy that you know quiet didn't take many risks just relaxed didn't do any stupid stuff right like me no uh <laughs> where were we um so yeah like i said he um associated himself with them people um and it is highly likely that he wouldn't have actually had the same it well, the um, same success in Formula 1 if it wasn't for these friends. So, yeah, I'd give a special mention to them. I can imagine Le Mans in the 50s being a very dangerous place. Yeah, and I think he's rightly to... Um, we'll get on to deaths, actually. Well, obviously, because <laughs> that's what happened. Um, so, yeah, around this time, his parents, like many others, actually um, caved in and supported him. Because at this time, obviously, racing at Le Mans, you might want to start, you know... Oh, he, he's half-decent, isn't he? Caving up a bit. Yeah. Um, so... His parents started, um, obviously, thinking of, you know, he might do well in this. And, I mean, he had that mind-blowing ability, really, and they've, they've got to accept it. Um, and as reluctant as Jim was uh, with a career in motorsport, um, he finally took motorsport a little bit more seriously when he got to Le Mans uh, and showed his breathtaking talent and actually surprised himself with his godlike abilities. 
That's what this script says. Did he win it? I don't know. He didn't. Right. But I mean, considering he went from a Talbot to Le Mans in about four years, it's it's crazy, isn't it, that you could do that back then? I mean, he was what twenty summer. Hmm. You have to be at Le Mans when you're seven nowadays to do that. I'm just thinking what the Holy Grail is. What is it now? Is it is winning F1, Indy 500, Indy car, in Indy 500, and Le Mans, isn't it? Is it that three? The three that you. you I don't think anybody's ever done it. and they Alonso no, they, they could are. have done it. Oh, have they done it? Graham Mills done it, I think. Okay. They did it on bikes as well. There's something to do with bikes. Right. Anyway, that is the end of the first half, and we will get back onto the rest of his insane life, to be fair. Okay. I mean, it's pretty decent. So we'll see you in a minute. All right. right. Anyway, we are back for the second half. I'm quickly going to set a time before we get going. And we'll How long get back is time? Uh, it's not half an hour, minutes, is it? I 15, might minutes, not 15 minutes. It's been a long day. Is it? What a shame. Anyway, so we are now into part three. It's called Where It Got Serious. Part three of the gym class part, story, not it. part three of the podcast. Got it. See? Now, this is where it starts to get serious, where Clark truly began to show his true talent. This began in 1958. Clark was given a punt in a little Lotus Elite Coupe at Brands Hatch. So, essentially, um, he got given a drive. Would you like to guess who gave him that drive? Jackie Stewart. Come on, famous. In 1958, Clark was given a punt in a Lotus Elite. Lotus. Uh, um, who owns Lotus? Colin Chapman. That's the one. Yeah, right. I always get them too much. For those who are listening, you're going to have to remember the name Colin Chapman because he does come up a lot in this. Because, I mean, it's where it all took off, essentially. So yeah, um, within literal seconds, actually, um, it got immediate attention of um, the legend that is Colin Chapman. And shortly after, Colin had invited Clark to race in a Lotus Formula Junior, uh, where unsurprisingly, Clark immediately took off in that. And not too long later, Colin was taking part in the latter part of the 1960 Formula One season. That quickly. He went from driving in this little Lotus thing in about uh, in the space of two years in Formula One. Um, Do you ever get a feeling back then, though, that there maybe was a shortage of drivers who were actually yeah. good enough and brave enough? It was just who's stupid enough to drive this. There wouldn't have been all the karting and everything yeah, yeah, yeah. like there is now. Literally. Anyway, um, so yeah, he took part in the latter part of the 1960 Formula 1 season uh, for Collins F1 team, of course, which is Lotus. Unfortunately, however, Clark was instantly introduced to what is... Um, well, what eventually ended his own life. I'm, of course, talking about the danger surrounding Formula One. I mean, you can't avoid it, can you? Even now. Within those first few months in which he was in Formula One, Chris Bristol, I don't know if you've heard of him. Nope. You will have heard of the story, though. He fatally crashed his Cooper, of which Jim Clark narrowly avoided the mutilated body laid on the circuit, returned back to the pits with blood on his car. Oh. So there's a body on track. That's you might have heard that story, uh, so that's how, that's how that came about, and the danger didn't stop there. Just a few laps later, Clark's dear friend Alan Stacy was also killed. Uh, Lotus, literally his teammate. Clark later admitted he was very, very close to stopping his motorsport career at that point, 
uh, reminding him and the rest of us what Formula One is actually like. It is dangerous, and you cannot avoid it. Well, all motorsport are dangerous. That's what them signs say. I mean, especially when you're driving bathtubs full of petrol. It's literally just a bomb. Back then, that was a bomb. Yeah. Uh, more near misses in the 1961 season left Clark even more mortified with Colin managing to keep him in the sport. Just. I mean, he had every right to walk away. Anyway, part four. This is the dominance era. This is where he starts to go ape, essentially. Over the next four years, the only thing stopping Clark was mechanical issues through no fault of his own. In fact, Clark is commonly recognised for his pure finesse behind the wheel, having the ability to compete in complete control of the car at all times, while still pushing to the limit. That is a talent, isn't it? Like, you can you can be quick over one lap, but doing that for 60 laps without cocking up, especially, you can't cock up in that era, can you? Um, yeah, he's just a calculated and consistent driver, which is literally the perfect credentials for a um, championship winner, isn't it? That's what you need. Mm-hmm. I mean, y- you need to finish to win the race, don't you? Anyway, uh, Clark missed out on the 1962 title and the 64 title, both through mechanical failures on the last race of the season. Wow. Oil leak, I believe. That's a shame, isn't it? Wilson Ferrari. Don't even. (laughs) Although he did still absolutely light up Formula 1 through the 1960s, there's no doubt about that. Uh, Clark went on to win the 1963 championship and 65, and um, went on to win the Indy 565 too. That's what he was on about. Yeah. This just shows he's just vast amount of ability behind the wheel of anything. And, you know, I'll get onto it later, but he took part in so many different um, events. It weren't just Formula 1, were not it? I mean, he got killed in Formula 2. He shouldn't have been driving that weekend. I'll get onto it. Anyway, um, whilst Clark had a God-given talent behind the wheel, Colin Chapman often commented on how Clark didn't have any technical knowledge whatsoever. Just layman's terms. Got it. And Jim often relied on uh, Colin... Uh, to translate his feedback to his race engineers because he could, he literally, he couldn't tell them what he wanted to do because he didn't know. He just thought, oh, it's all right. <laughs> Bit like me, really. Uh, he, he also stated how he didn't understand where he got his pace from. He just thought it was driving. Easy and natural, then, isn't it? That's what I'm. That's exactly what I put here, which mm. to me suggests that he's quite humble, but also like he can be comfortable at a level that no one else can even get to, and that's pretty mental, isn't it? It is. I mean, yeah. to be j- just like, oh, this is all right. I'm driving all right. And he's driving that quick. Imagine if he thought he was pushing. Um, he also had the natural ability to quite literally drive around any problems that he may run into out on track with his car. So, you know, mechanical failures, even though obviously he did lose out on some of these, but he still managed to drive through a lot of them. Um, and he was also considered by the likes of Jackie Stewart, Graham Hill, that he was a very calm and controlled individual. The sort of person which bites his fingernails regularly which makes me an obvious Formula 1 driver. Obviously. You, you get what I mean? He also says um, that he drove himself to every race or flew there with just him and his girlfriend. Well, back then, you maybe had to. It just seems to me that the sort of bloke that... I mean, it even they even said, like, back in the day, he was terrible in front of camera, couldn't stand press, press stuff, because he just wanted to drive and go home. He didn't really care about anything else. He just wanted to make it in one piece and win. No, mm. si- no silly, like, over-ambition, you know, what you get with your Senna's and your Schumacher's, where they'll crash into people sort of thing. Didn't do that, it's just... You mean like a gentleman? Yeah, I mean, like you had Sterling. to... Yeah, you had to be at this period of Formula 1, though. Yeah. You couldn't be an arse, because if you were an arse, you'd kill somebody, and you'd never be forgiven. I mean, at that point, at the, that time especially, it was like one person dying every weekend. And it was just 
it's just like when when are you going to be next down the list? You know, because there's tw- out of twenty, you you've got a one in chance that one in twenty that you're going to die this weekend. Imagine that now. Mm. Imagine if Lewis went last weekend. Uh, I'm not going to say someone went this weekend because if that happens, then I'll never be able to forgive myself. It's not that you know that you know that thing they've put in front of the car, the halo thing. Mm. Have you tried driving in car on Formula One games w- with that halo yeah, in the middle? Bad. I don't know how they do it. Don't forget though, they don't sit bolt centre like we do in the F1 game. They sit slightly off centre so they can look around it and they can like move the head. Mm. And and they'll be looking into corners. You know, like if they're turning right, they'll be looking like that, not straight. Do you get what I mean? Yeah. I right. mean, your head does tilt. They, they, they can look round it a bit. Yeah. Got it. Anyway, so that was the dominant era. Essentially, that was from about. 1962 to about 1965-ish. Now, the problem is the downfall came along because um, at the beginning of the 1966 season, there was regulation changes. Them little B-words that caught out Mercedes last year, which essentially crippled them and meant that their 1966 Lotus 33 housed an a reasonably unsuccessful 2-litre Coventry Climax engine. I mean... Who the hell's heard of that? That's not that's not going to win his titles because he had to downsize because it's maximum three liter engines essentially. But after not scoring points at the British Grand Prix and only a third only at the Dutch uh, Grand Prix, that says a lot, doesn't it? Only hmm. the 33 got rightfully put on the back burner for the Lotus 43 uh, from the Italian GP onwards and brought him success at the U.S. Grand Prix and second behind Graham Hill at the Indianapolis 500. How do you think Graham Hill's got all three? I think he's one of the only people to do it. Am I right in thinking Graham Hill got killed in motorsport as well? He got killed in a plane crash. What was it? The plane that he was flying, yeah. Right. Because I read it about, this is slight off topic, but I w- we might touch on Damon Hill at one point because he's one of my favourite drivers. I read his autobiography and he talks about his dad dying on the day and whatever. Um, I, he was flying back because he wanted to make it back that night to be with them two, his mum and Damon, whatever, or probably his sister. Um, and there's, I can't, I never read into it, but Damon says in the book that he could have mistook like because he didn't land that far away from the runway. I think he's mistaken some other lights for the runway and gone into the floor thinking it was the runway. Right. That sort of thing. I mean, back then you probably wouldn't have the same sort of communication. No, no, there won't be now. There must have been at least air traffic control. Am I landing in a field or on the runway? Yeah, but can, uh, can they see you yeah. like they can nowadays? Yeah, I guess. There'll be no proximity, uh, ground proximity yeah. alert or anything. That's fair enough. So, um, yeah, he finished second behind Damon Hill at the Indianapolis 500. Uh, then came along 1967, where Clark jumped between three different engine and car configurations. Imagine that. Imagine Lewis jumping between three cars this season. I mean, he might have to, to be fair. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> Which, yeah, I've put here, quite the difference from the modern-day Formula 1. Uh, they continued with the Lotus 43, the one that they used to replace the 33, and then returned to the 33 for some reason. Um, and then finally, they found the feat with the Lotus 49, which on paper has the most successful engine in Formula 1 history. You will have heard this, the Ford Cosworth DFV. You know, the V8, the mm. most, that thing that went Cosy. up until like, yeah, that thing went up until the 80s. Right. And that was the late 60s, that thing was invented. Um, so yeah, where it brought Clark uh, success, firstly at the Dutch Grand Prix, then in Britain, America, Mexico, and South Africa in January of 1968. It was fatal year in 1968. That was the last Formula 1 race he took part in, was the South African Grand Prix in January. So here it is, 1968, the end, is what I've called this, part six. 
What made Clark extremely versatile was the amount of different championships he'd enter. Essentially, during these off-seasons, he'd, he'd get in anything he could. He'd get in Fiestas one weekend, he'd get in Formula 1 cars the next. Yeah. Which could actually be considered the cause of his death. I mean, it is, because he wasn't competing in his, you know, like his, his main... He was in Formula 2, wasn't it? And as, as great and as astonishing as, as that is, uh, that he entered so many different events, um, it obviously brought that increased risk. The more time you spent out on track, the more risk there is, isn't there? Obviously. Yeah, like I put, simply put, uh, the more amount, yeah, blah, blah. Tragically, this came back to, unfortunately, bite Jim on the arse, is what I've put, which okay. it did. Jim won the first and only race that he competed in 1968 at South Africa in January, like I said. And during the four-month gap between the first and second race, so the next race after South Africa, Clark um, competed in both Formula 2 and the BOAC Sports Car Series and had a crucial decision to make at the beginning of April 1968. He could either compete in the BOAC 1,000km Sports Car Race at Brands Hatch, which is what he should have done, or a Formula 2 race at Germany's Hockenheim. Do you... See... That would be, st- be the old Hockenheim. When did you start out. watching Formula 1? Ooh. Early um, 80s, late 70s? Yeah. Well... You will have watched a different version of Hockenheim to this one. You know when they went through the forest? Hmm. Your era, they would have had chicanes in that forest. There was in the two. middle, yeah. They didn't even have them then in the 60s. Right. It was just one long thing. And this is what I will get on to. So he chose the F2 race in Germany. And uh, interestingly, some say that he chose the F2 race due to contractual obligations with a company called Firestone, which could have encouraged him to race at Hockenheim. Because a bigger event, I think. As opposed to like some crummy little sports car series that I didn't even hear of. I think they want him to compete in the bigger stuff. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. You want you want as much brand coverage as you can get. Correct. Um, but, I know I said this earlier, but back in the 60s, the majority of Formula 1 drivers that took part in um, Formula 1 took part in alternative series. So, like, during the off period between each race, James, like, um, I've put, James, names like um, Clay Rigozzini. Oh, yeah, yeah. Rigozzini. You know who his teammate was, don't you? No, but you're going to tell me. Um, want it? Um, Nicky Lauda at Ferrari. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. He's on the film. Good point. Rush. Good point. Uh, so there was names like him, Graham Hill, and Max Mosley, just to name a few. Good old Max. Let's get about Max the better. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like this is what I mean. Back then, that was kind of the norm in your in your two week break to just go and race, mm. regardless if you're an F one or not. But it probably weren't enough money in it. That's another good point. I mean, you don't have to do that nowadays. No. A, I mean, I know there's more training in them two-week period where you probably couldn't get away with, you know, recovery. You can't get behind the wheel or something. But back then, sod it. 60s, isn't it? You just do what you want. Um, nevertheless, he got to the Formula 2 race, and back then there was two heats to the race. So, yeah, he got on with it. He never thought of it. He got behind the wheel and raced his race in Formula 2. He was racing the Lotus 48 in the first heat and obviously the second heat and it and it just went it went through the ridiculous 1960s Hockenheim circuit I'll put a picture up on the screen of like the forest section I don't know if you've ever seen it or you mean will have and this circuit has since gone under massive changes since then it went under the chicanes after he died I think to the 80s layout and then it just got cut off didn't it there's no there's no forest it, section now it's not the same anymore terrible it's a rubbish track yeah it was literally to slow down the cars from barreling through the forest at like Above 120 mile an hour. I mean, I couldn't get an exact figure, but you'd like to think they're doing at least 120. 
I mean, I know we were doing a lot more than that when he died, I think. Uh, then came in the fatal lap of lap five for Jim Clark. The car veered off whilst travelling through the fatal forest section of the infamous circuit, killing James Clark, that was his actual name, not Jim, uh, before even reaching a hospital bed, Clark sadly suffered a broken neck and fractured skull. And the cause of death is still undetermined to this day, although it's commonly believed that a tyre blew and caused the veering of Clark's Lotus into Hockenheim's forest. That's what people are saying. Right. However, some argued that it could have been due to driver error. Don't know about that. But drivers like Jackie Stewart argued that Clark was simply too good enough to make a mistake that big. And that it must have been a tie blowout. And personally, I do actually believe that, that it's tie blowing out. Because right. Jim Clark, come on. I mean, it's like when Senna crashed. Senna did not make a mistake. It was a completely flat-out corner with no thought involved. There's no break. You'd have to turn. You just a little bit of turn you in. Same with that. Um, so, yeah, that was quickly rush under the carpet. No, no one really gave that a second thought, I don't think. But there you go. After 33 pole positions, 25 out of 72 Grand Prix entries. So, 25 wins out of 72. And an unreal ability to push a variety of cars constantly to limit across a number of different series. That was the end of Jim Clark. So, technically, how, how old was he then? He died in 1968, born in 36. So, do some quick maths on that one. He was 32 years old. April 8th, 1968, Jim Clark was killed. Mm, 32. That's crazy. Imagine if he carried on. Yeah. I mean, back then, Formula One drivers raced into the 40s. What was the question of the week? Yeah, yeah. How old were you? 50? 53. There you go. I mean, Fernando Alonso, 41. Yeah, still win. Still actually performing better than I he ever did. Or just as good. Not to say he won't win one this year. I think it could happen, but I don't want it to happen. In the same way that I want Ferrari to win, but it won't happen. Right. Anyway, that is the Jim Clark story. It was um, concised a lot more to what I actually uh, wrote. I wrote a lot more than that. I just wanted to get in and, you know, give a brief understanding of Jim Clark. Yeah. It's, just, it's just a good... I think I, I sort of did this as like just a trial and error, like a documentary story type series. You might do it, you might just stop doing it. But it's like from, from topic ideas like three cars of certain sort and we don't really talk much about them. We get through them too quick, don't we? Right. I wanted to concentrate on something that just teach people new things like they wouldn't people watching this have never heard of Jim Clark now when it comes up on the chase they might know I only knew the basics I didn't know uh, 90% did you know who killed at Hockenheim nope really mm-hmm. see I, to be fair I probably knew about as much as you I knew that killed at Hockenheim in an F2 race that's it right I didn't even know that but I mean just imagine I mean losing drivers like that then you lost obviously Graham Hill a couple of years later I think, I think he died in 78 in that plane crash but by then obviously you weren't Formula One as yeah. much. Anyway, um, I guess that brings us to the end. A very sad ending, actually. <laughs> well, we'll be happier next week. Will we? Yeah. Yeah, we might be. We will. will there be an F1 race by the time... Yeah, there's one this Sunday. Not this Sunday. What? There is one this Sunday. There is. We've gone Saudi Arabian weeks. Grand Prix. Is it? My favourite track on the calendar. Right. So we'll we'll brush on that when we get back, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So in the meantime, uh, watch that. We've got Sky Sports, like we said. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we'll see you next time. Try out.